Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most heinous, the most high-profile homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are profiled, and they are examined. For this season, season five, the focus is on sick, twisted, pedophile, or sex-related type murders. All these types of homicides that occurred in Maryland, and as I stated in the last episode, the state of Maryland, it, it has so many of these types of sick and twisted, sadistic type of homicides that this is just part one. Part two will be featured later. So with that being said, let's get right to it. On this episode, the senseless, heinous murder of 11-year-old Irvin Harris will be profiled. And as in each episode, an unsolved homicide that needs attention will also be profiled. And this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 16-year-old Elajene Davis. Now, according to Wikipedia, a pedophile is defined as someone, it could be male or female, who is sexually attracted to children or kids. And it's more common than people think. The exact cause of why some people are like this, it isn't really known either, but it can be caused by certain childhood experiences. Many experts, including doctors who specialize in this sort of mental illness, they believe that pedophilia, it can't be cured. I mean, you might can change the behavior of a pedophile, but nothing can stop or change the desire or the sexual attraction that these pedophiles have to a child. In other words, once a pedophile, always a pedophile in my book. So the question is, should a person who has shown or they have a repeat pattern of abusing and molesting kids should they be allowed to live out in society with the rest of us? Let's just go there and, I mean, let's just go there and ask it. I mean, isn't that like literally asking for trouble? Waiting for the in inevitable to happen? Let's take a look at the case of 52-year-old Melvin Lorenzo Jones Jr. See, as a kid, Melvin knew he was different from all the other kids. For whatever reason, Melvin knew that he was sexually attracted to little kids. Babies, basically. I mean, kids who were way younger than him. And at just 16 years old, Melvin realized that you could be arrested for acting out on that behavior. At the age of 16, Melvin lived in a row home in the 700 block of West Fayette Street, and a neighbor came home one day, way back in July of 1970, and found Melvin alone with her five-year-old daughter. 
the little girl had her clothes off and Melvin had his pants unzipped. I would have lost my fucking mind, but the little girl's mother asked Melvin, she was like, why would you do such a thing? And Melvin calmly just told her, because I had the urge. The girl's mother reported this to the police and Melvin was arrested. Melvin was charged with attempted rape, but the case went absolutely nowhere and the judge dismissed the case. Melvin graduated from high school and he went on to have at least two daughters. Then in September of 1989, a relative of Melvin's was putting her four-year-old daughter to bed one night when the girl told her that Melvin had been touching her inappropriately. The mother also reported, she also reported that to the police and of course they questioned Melvin. Melvin told the police, yeah, I, I take the girl a bath sometimes and she might be getting that confused with me, you know, molesting her or something. The cops were like, nah, nope. They're not buying that one. So after they kept on questioning him, Melvin did admit th that the four-year-old was telling the truth and that he did fondle her. Melvin told the investigators that he was really sorry and he felt bad and that he hated that he had hurted the little girl and he brought all the shame and disgrace on his family. He told them that although he believed and thought that he would never do nothing like this again, but he did want and need psychiatric help for his urges and his condition. Melvin was charged with second degree, sec second degree sex offense and sexual child abuse, but he pled guilty to the abuse charge in 1990 and he got a sentence of seven years with all but seven months and seven days suspended and five years of probation. Basically, I mean, he got out early. The judge he did order Melvin to go to group therapy or counseling, and for six months, he received some bullshit, probably state or federally funded crap they call treatment at the Walter P. Carter Mental Health Center in downtown Baltimore. But it was no help. That's the only help I got. The only help I got, made, Melvin later commented to investigators. Meanwhile, Melvin drifted through the city living with his mother at a home in the 3500 block of Old Frederick Road in Southwest Baltimore. Melvin lived just three doors away, literally just three doors away from Sarah M. Roach Elementary School and a block away from St. Bernardine's, a Catholic school. On the morning of February the 18th, 1994, three girls were walking to school and the nine-year-olds were shocked at what they saw. There, standing next to his mother's house, standing in plain view, stood Melvin. He had his pants down and he stood there jacking off like some pervert. I mean, honestly, really? Seriously? That? Mm. The girls went, to, went on to school and told a teacher what they had just seen. The teacher then reported it to the Baltimore City Police Department to make this issue even sicker, the girls told the police that this wasn't the first time that they had seen him do that, nor were they the only kids that had seen him do it. So Melvin got locked up for that one too. That arrest, that violated his probation that he had gotten in his earlier case, and he got a sentence of two years for violating his probation 
and he got nine months for the indecent exposure. And yet, another bullshit baby sentence. Anyway, Melvin got out. But Melvin is a pedophile. And these type of pedophiles, these repeat offenders, they just don't quit. I mean, they don't stop. They don't stop just because they went to prison. They don't stop just because they got some therapy. Medication doesn't stop them. I heard even castration doesn't stop them. May 2000. Melvin's own sister was about to take her 8-year-old daughter over to her grandmother's house on Old Frederick Road when the girl was like, she ain't want to go over there because that's where Melvin lives. The little girl then went on to confide to her mother that her uncle Melvin, who lived in the basement of the home, had been touching her inappropriately ever since she was about four years old. Although the girl's mother did report this to the police, this case wasn't really pursued by prosecutors either because the girl's mother, uh, Melvin's mother, and a neighbor, they all wrote letters to the court saying that Melvin had never really been left alone with the little girl. Didn't really matter anyway because in January of 2000, Melvin met a 13-year-old boy who was walking home from school. Melvin later told the police that he was like, basically, he said he met the kid, they talked, he gave the boy a hug, they had, then they just had consensual sex at Melvin's mother's house. For a year and a half, up until July of 2021, the boy later told investigators that he had at least 10 consensual sexual acts with Melvin. His mom, I mean, the the boy's mother knew none of this. I mean, no matter how consensual they both kept saying that this sick shit was, the boy eventually told his mother what was going on, and his mother told the police. Again, Melvin was arrested and pled guilty in January of 2002, to two counts of third-degree sex offense. Before Melvin was sentenced, he addressed the boy's family and begged for help, saying, Well, what I would like to say is that, you know, I'm sorry that I caused any of, you know, trauma or pain for the victim's family, and as you know, my family as well. And I, I need help, you know. I guess this is my way of crying out for some type of help because... Because I, I really, really need help, and I'm tired of living this way. I hate being this way. I really do. I hate living like this. I mean, this is the truth coming out. I hate living like this. I don't want nothing to, I guess, occur anymore, or to say it, this to say it did, to lead to violence, which I don't know that it would. I'm asking for help from somebody, because I'm tired. I'm, I'm tired of going through this. Now, imagine if you was the judge and you heard a defendant standing in front of you telling you something like that. What would you do? And this time, Melvin, you know, after, even after all of that, he's sitting there telling the judge, look, I'm going to screw up. This is who I am. I'm a pedophile, you know, and I, want, I need help before I zap out, you know, and make it even make, you know, things even more violent than what they was. This time, Melvin, by law, he got a sentence of two concurrent terms of 10 years in prison with all of that suspended all but one year suspended and five years of supervised probation with special conditions and one of those special conditions was that he was supposed to receive 
like more treatment for his pedophilia but because of some like computer error or man-made mistake or whatever that requirement was never entered into his file and after about seven months Melvin was back out on the streets he followed his requirements of parole by registering as a sex offender he submitted his he submitted his DNA to a sex offender database his parole officer even later commented to the Baltimore Sun by he made a statement that said this offender has been cooperative and continues to report throughout and agents trained to deal with sex offenders they supervise him very closely and visited his home at least once a month and checked in with his employer at Rockland Industries Melvin did everything that was required of him to do and what his parole officer didn't know was that Melvin was already violating his parole and probation all of these precautions they still could not contain Melvin's urges and desires and nor did it prevent him from being around kids Irvin Jermaine Harris was a little boy who was already born into dire circumstances I mean his father started serving a 20-year prison sentence for killing a man when Irvin was just three years old and Irvin hadn't even seen him since he was five the boy confided to his friends and family that now as an 11 year old boy he forgot what his own father even looked like Irvin's 41 year old mother had six other children whose ages ranges from 9 to 25 she was also a grandmother of seven grandkids Irvin's mother struggled with drug addiction and with more than 12 drug and theft convictions on her record Irvin's mother survived off of disability checks but she did make attempts at getting clean and as she got her doses of methadone at a local drug treatment program sometimes she allowed Melvin to babysit her kids at first she met and dated Melvin's brother after he had just gotten out of prison for a time she struggled with homelessness and after she lived in a shelter with her kids when the relationship with Melvin's brother ended Melvin made his move but she turned him down saying he wasn't her type but somehow and for whatever reasons Melvin still managed to engrave himself on this family and he became like some family friend or sick-ass role model to her kids especially to Irvin for more than three years he played daddy and made himself at home at their row home in the Bel Air Edison neighborhood Melvin babysat her kids while she went to her NA meetings making sure her kids were fit I mean make sure they were you know fit make sure they were fed make sure they had baths make sure they was like all tucked in nice and neat before they went to bed he smothered Irvin with attention taking him to the local library and teaching him how to use a computer he spent time watching movies with Irvin playing games with him or even completing puzzles and stuff like that with him Melvin bought the boy his own computer to use and Irvin would type up letters to his father about how much he missed him Melvin also bought Irvin a cell phone for him to use and Melvin would text the child throughout the day like they were a couple or like besties or something in fact Irvin's mother later told reporters that once she saw a text from Melvin to her son that said I love you but she didn't think nothing of it one day 
a social worker at Urban's mother's drug treatment program, she showed her a picture of Melvin on Maryland's sex offender registry website, and she flat out told her that Melvin was a sex offender and wasn't even supposed to be around kids. The principal of Urban School, Collinson Square Elementary, told Urban's mother the same thing, and when Urban's mother asked Melvin about his charges, Melvin told her that, yeah, he was like, yeah, he, he touched a boy, but he said it was with the boy's consent and that he never had actual sex with the kid. Melvin told her that he himself had told the boy's mother about the affair and the boy's mother had called the police. Melvin told Irvin's mother that he didn't really do no prison time and that he was in treatment for his desires. After he told Irvin's mother this, she said she told him that he couldn't stay at her home anymore or be alone with her kids. But all of that soon went out the window and Melvin was still allowed to babysit and go places with them as a family and hang out with, with them like he was fixed or like he was normal or something. I thought that everyone could change and I see now I was really wrong, Irvin's mother later commented to the Baltimore Sun. 4th of July, 2006, Baltimore City Police got involved when they received a report that Melvin had threatened to kill Irvin. According to a police report, Melvin and Irvin were with family at the Inner Harbor. Irvin later told the police that, he basically told the police that Melvin had put his hands around his neck, squeezed, choking him, and said, I'll kill you. Melvin and Irvin's mother might have thought that it was just a minor issue, but the police upgraded it from a common assault to aggravated assault, and a warrant was issued for Melvin's arrest. The police also instructed Irvin's mother to follow up on those charges, but she never did. The police didn't let up, and at first they called Irvin's mother at her home to see if she pursued those charges, but her phone was turned off. The police even drove around in the neighborhood looking for Melvin, but he was nowhere to be found. And Irvin's mother never reported him to the police when he did come back around. About a week after this incident, a new girl moved into the neighborhood, a little nine-year-old girl, and Irvin was smitten with her. Known to easily be friends with, you know, making people, making friends with people in the neighborhood, Irvin, now 11, quickly made friends with this little girl and the two became like childhood boyfriend and girlfriend with little crushes on each other. Irvin offered to buy the girl a new teddy bear to make sure, you know, that she knew that she was his girlfriend. The girl later commented to the Baltimore Sun saying, we used to always go on the porch and start dancing. He was my boyfriend. All of the attention that Irvin was showing like this new girl that shit ain't sit right with grown-ass Melvin because he considered Irvin his boyfriend. His sick, grown ass had it twisted and basically he was jealous because an 11-year-old boy wasn't showing him attention and was basically into a girl closer to his age. And he ain't like that. Artscape, 2006. Melvin took Irvin and his family to this well-publicized event in Baltimore City. It's like when a whole bunch of vendors get together, they basically try to sell all their art and stuff like that. Basically, it's, it's hot, you know, <clears throat> it's like the Afrin. Anyway, a week later, 
um, Irvin was playing in the neighborhood when he offered to buy snowballs for a few girls who were playing in the area. See, sometimes Irvin, this little boy, he earned a few dollars by helping to carry groceries to people's cars at the area food depot. He would rarely spend the little bit of money that he earned on himself. Even as a kid, I mean, once Irvin reportedly, he used all the money that he earned to buy cat food for a family of stray kittens that he secretly took care of in the back of his house. That's the type of kid he was. According to articles in the Baltimore Sun, Irvin loved music, he loved dancing, and he loved Mariah Carey, and he had recorded himself singing her songs. Irvin was a typical 11-year-old boy, played in local, like, Pop Warner Youth Football League, and he loved roller skating. On the afternoon of Friday, July 28th, 2006, Irvin set off to buy, like, these snowballs for his new friends, and he told them that he'd be back in a few minutes. Irvin headed down Bel Air Road towards the Bel Air Food Market. Witnesses later, witnesses and, a na- and neighbors later told police that that's when they saw, they last saw Irvin, and he was walking and talking to Melvin. Later, Irvin's mother told reporters that when she got home hours later and Irvin wasn't there, she instantly got a weird, bad feeling and she could feel that something was wrong. And plus, Melvin was nowhere in sight. Together, she and her family jumped into action, making flyers and placing them all in the area with pictures of Irvin trying to find him. At 1.40 a.m., Irvin's mother finally called the Baltimore City Police Department and reported her son missing. When the police learned that Irvin had last been seen with a convicted repeat child sex offender, they zeroed in on Melvin and the search was on to find Irvin. On Sunday, Irvin's older sister got a call from Melvin telling her that she could find her brother's body in the woods behind the Berea Lutheran Church in the 2900 block of Bel Air Road across the street from Clifton Park Golf Course and only a block away from Urban's home. Melvin also called his own daughter and told her the same thing. Perhaps he knew like that he had really fucked up this time and basically this was it. When the police were notified and they searched the area, that's where they found the bloody body of the 11-year-old who would have been in the fifth grade at Collington Square, Collington Elementary School. This straight-A student who loved reading so much that he would help his mother study her for her GED lessons had been stabbed 14 times in the chest and had slash marks on his hands and right arm showing that he fought back hard. Urban was pronounced dead at the scene. When told that Urban was murdered, Irvin's mother insisted that Irvin never showed any signs that he had had been or was being abused by anybody. I keep thinking that if I didn't have so much trust, he would be here, Irvin's mother later commented to reporters for the Baltimore Sun. Shortly after Irvin's body was found, an anonymous tip came into the police department on where Melvin could be found, and the police arrested him at a McDonald's in downtown Baltimore as he stood in line for his food. More than 500 people went to Irvin's funeral as they paid their last respects to a boy many of them didn't even know. The boy was described as a bright kid with a bright smile. 
Held without bail and charged with first-degree murder of Irvin, Melvin quickly pled guilty to killing the boy. Melvin's confession tape was played in court, and on tape, he said that they hadn't seen each other all week because the boy had been preoccupied. Melvin continued, I, didn't have, I did not have no intentions at all to do it. It might sound weird, but we were fine. And then it started raining. I, I just snapped. I lost it. I grabbed him around his neck and I threw him over the tree trunk and I just stabbed him more than a dozen times as he fought for his life. Melvin told the detectives that he grabbed a buck knife out of his back pocket and he just just kept stabbing him. He said that uh, on tape, he says that Irvin kept saying to him, Melvin, I love you. Why are you doing this? What are you doing? And he said, Irvin asked him, is it my girlfriend? And he, Melvin said that he never answered. He said he just kept going and Melvin just kept saying that, you know, Irvin said he didn't want to die. So on tape, the detectives asked Melvin if he was jealous of Irvin's new relationship with his girlfriend. Like, is, is that why you did what he did? And Melvin said, to be honest, yes. I was getting to the point where he wasn't spending time with me. Or it was getting to the point where he wasn't spending time with me. I'm like, what? So Melvin would not admit to molesting or sexually assaulting Irvin at all. But when the detectives asked him about it, he kept saying that, you know, he never molested him. He never abused him. And the detectives kept pushing. They said, you know, did you try to maybe do something and maybe Irvin resisted? And Melvin answered with, even if I had tried, he probably would have wanted me to. This sick and twisted mind of a pedophile you telling me an 11-year-old boy wanted to be with a 52-year-old man? I mean, God help me, honestly. Anyway, even though Melvin wasn't charged with sexually abusing Irvin, it's probably safe to say that this was because several family members told police that they did see them in bed together all the time. So I'm assuming that he was molesting him at the same time. Anyway, Melvin told the detectives that after he had stabbed Irvin, he kissed him on the forehead and even snuck back down to the crime scene late that night to sit with the boy's body and spend one last night with him. In the end, Melvin accepted a plea deal of 50 years in prison, not life without the possibility for parole like he deserved, but a sentence long enough to where the 52-year-old will most likely die in prison. Oh, I forgot. And Urban's mother... The police wasn't going to let her get off that easy, and eventually she was arrested and charged with reckless endangerment and four counts of criminal neglect because she had willingly and knowingly allowed her son to associate with a convicted sexual predator despite the repeated warnings that she had received letting her know that Melvin was a pedophile and wasn't even supposed to be around kids. She ended up getting five years of probation for her role in Urban's murder. Now, everybody knows why this was a notorious case in Merlin. I mean, it was an 11-year-old boy. Um, he was brutally murdered. He was thrown behind a church. Who don't remember this case? And plus, um, it involved a repeat pedophile who sat up there and told the judge, look, look, this is what I, what I am. I need some help. 
this is what I'm going to do if you let me go, blah, blah, blah. But by law, what can they do? That's why I, I keep asking the question, what are you supposed to do with convicted sex offenders who have already served their time? Only thing you can do is what? Just put them on a database and keep monitoring them and hope nothing happens? I mean, ugh. What was he going to do? Um, I have to say this about um, Urban's mother. Now, I'm going to be honest. I spent some time when I was locked up. I was locked up for some child-related stuff. Um, and I was pretty much hated. She got my old... She, <laughs> The lady who... She got my old cell. They put her in PC right after I left. Went home. She ended up getting my old cell. That's how much she was hated. Because people were like, what? How could you do that? You know, blah, blah, blah. I did kind of feel bad for her. I'm not saying that, you know, she wanted anything that happened to her son, but the neglect was obvious. You know, the neglect was obvious. I mean, he was a convicted pedophile and no matter what the excuse was, I don't care if you couldn't find a babysitter or anything. I've left my kids in the house by themselves before I would have left them alone with a pedophile. And then you said you had kids ranged from 20 something to so-and-so they couldn't babysit. So, I mean, it's just, this case was real messed up. Um, his mind is all screwed up. If this is what a pedophile thinks that a child is in love with you, wow, what made you this way? Where you abused yourself? Something, because this is a mental illness is not to be fucked with. For you to think that an 11-year-old boy was in love with you and you're jealous because he has feelings for a female, a girl? Get the fuck out of here. I mean, and plus he was into little boys and little girls. Sometimes pedophiles, you know, they're picky. You know, they, 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 I didn't, it's rare that they pick, they like both, other, both sexes. They usually stick to one particular sex, but you're that sick where you're dipping and dabbing in both. He's right where he belongs at. I mean, finally, you wanted help. You wanted help for your pedophilia. You wanted, you know, help and your urges and your stuff like that. You right where you belong at. You're not going to get any help, but hey, you won't be allowed to you know, mess with kids anymore. Talk to your kids too. I mean, a four-year-old was telling, and this, this was a relative's, a four-year-old was telling her mother that she was being touched. Talk to your kids. I mean, sickness, man, sick. Mm. Because, you know, there's no cure. Experts have said it. There's no cure for pedophilia. There's no cure for sexual sadism. Um... Like I said, the question remains, what should we do with convicted um, pedophiles who have served their time? Other than just this, you know, being at home and registering on the sex offender and, you know, what other is, there's no, also there's no treatment available. There has to be in the state of Maryland another solution other than just by law releasing convicted sex offenders back into society because they serve their time. Oh, it's frustrating. I mean, that's a topic that we can talk about all day long, but oh, mm, it gets me hot. Moving right into this week's unsolved homicide. But before I do, let me just mention that like in each season before this one, there will always be an unsolved homicide that needs attention that will be discussed and profiled. Believe it or not, Every person that gets killed in Maryland, they do not make the news. It doesn't always make Murder, Inc. It doesn't always get featured on Fox 45 or WBAL or nothing like that. It's more like a victim gets shot, they get killed or whatever. 
you pretty much sometimes don't hear nothing else about the victim. You don't hear nothing else about the case. It was like the victim was here one minute and the next minute they was gone. God forbid they had a pass or something like that. I mean, the victim's family is just expected to pick up where they left off, move on with their lives, like ain't nothing ever happened, and basically just hope for the best. You know what? I've been there. I rode that wave with y'all. But guess what? On this podcast, we give attention to not only the notable high-profile homicide cases in Maryland, but I also focus on unsolved homicides that may or may not have received the attention and the respect that they deserved. Um, or I focus also on unsolved homicides where it seemed like nothing was being done or nothing was being done basically because the victim lived this way or the victim lived that way. You know what? It doesn't even matter because it does not matter the type of lifestyle that the victim lived or whatever they did in their personal time. The family still deserves to know what happened and why. The family still deserves justice. So with that being said, this episode's Unsolved Homicide features the shooting murder of 16-year-old, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this right, Elajene Davis. 16-year-old Elajene Davis, she was just trying to get her hair done. That's it. And on Saturday, May 30th, 2002, around 3 a.m., I'm sorry, 2020, 3 a.m., she set out with a group of friends to go to a store on their way back from the store, a male friend that one of her friends was familiar with, he offered to give them a ride back home. And the girls accepted the ride from this 30-year-old dude. Anyway, with the dude driving and Elijah Nay sitting in the passenger seat or in the car, as they drove back home, suddenly someone opened fire on the car in the 2100 block of Wilkins Avenue in the Bentville Smallwood neighborhood of West Baltimore City. Both the driver and Elijane were hit. The driver managed to drive to St. Agnes Hospital where he survived. But Elijane shot in the throat. She was pronounced dead shortly after arrival. According to articles for the Baltimore Sun, Elijane was a ninth grade sophomore honor student at National Academy Foundation High School in Baltimore City. She loved hip hop music she loved to dance, and she loved wearing bright colored clothes. All of her teachers loved her, and they descri- described her as a teen who was naturally gifted and a strong writer. A teacher gave a statement to the Baltimore Sun that read, The entire school year is grieving. She was well-liked and well-respected amongst her peers. She was uplifting when other students were going through personal tragedies and traumas. Elijanate was there. At a candlelight vigil held in her honor, her mother described her daughter as smart, intelligent, and had a golden smile. I just don't understand this. It seems like that's the only only option now people have is nowadays is to get a gun and start shooting. It needs to be heard and it really needs to not be overlooked. And Elijane's aunt said, we just want justice for our princess. We all have a hole in our heart that's missing. She's gone, but her spirit and smile are still with us. The police don't think that Elijane was the shooter's intended target. And 
although there is a $4,000 reward for any evidence leading to a conviction or an arrest for her murder, the investigators literally have nothing else. And they need your help, y'all. So y'all already know what I'm about to say. Y'all already know how I get down. If you have any information that can lead to an arrest or conviction in Allegiant murder, please, please call detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also call them at uh, Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-877-7-LOCKUP. You can also send them a text message at 443-902-4824. You can email them at homicidetips at baltimorepolice.org. Once again, I'm going to get those numbers again, like I always do. You can call Cold Cake Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also call them at Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-877-7-LOCKUP. You can send them a text message at 443-902-4824. You can also send an email at homicidetips, that's tips with an S, at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous, people. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingly, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. Also, for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the truth on why I do what I do every week. You'll find out why I'm kind of like into true crime. A lot of people think I just woke up one day and just decided to start writing books, talking about killers and whatnot and blood and gory and all of that. Nope, but that's not hardly the truth. There's a full-blown method to all of my madness. Also, be sure to pay a visit to the new website which is www.marylandsmostnotoriousmurders.com and Marilyn is spelled M-D-S, Most Notorious Murders, with an S, dot com to get immediate access to all of the prior episodes that have been released for Season 1 through Season 4, as well as links to all of the books that are related to this podcast entitled Marilyn's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Marilyn's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, which I believe every woman should read that book. Anyway, also check out my local bestsellers, Junkie, A True Baltimore Story, and Child of Baltimore. Be sure to tune in next week where another high-profile, bizarre, notable homicide occurring in Maryland will be examined, it will be profiled, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. This has been a Savage Life production.